Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Real View Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Wiley. With me today is our special guest, retired Marine Staff Sergeant Eric Alva. He will be speaking to us at our Diversity Summit in just a couple weeks, um, up and coming in October. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we will be live and in person, and we can't wait to hear from you, Eric. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Thank you for having me, Allison. I'm very grateful and fortunate. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for being here. Um, like I said, you'll be presenting, I believe you're our keynote speaker at our conference, which is going to be great. So we don't want to give away too much of what you'll be talking about in October, but we did want to bring you on to uh, share a little bit about your story and things that you've experienced in your life, maybe to some individuals who won't be able to make it to our conference and to other listeners you know, across the country who I think would benefit from hearing from your story because it's a really cool one. You've been through a lot, have a lot of experiences and are going to share some awesome stuff with us today. But before we get into that, I want to kick off with our real view question, which is what is the best view that you've ever seen? You know, the way things are uh, today and everything, and it's something that flies in the front of my house and even coming home from war. When you see people at the airports or everyone, I, for me, my view is always the American flag. Mm. I, I love that. I love the flag. I mean, I could I could stand there and watch it wave or fly in the wind for hours. It's just it's it's just very important to me as far as the the beauty of this country and the patriotism and and what I fought for and almost died for. But but that's that's my you know favorite view of all. Even when I'm closing my eyes at night. Oh, I love that. It never gets old. And there is just something so beautiful about when the sun is shining and it's like flowing in the breeze and everything that it stands for. Um, you're right. That's that's awesome. And a view that we get to see, you know, a lot if we're lucky, which I think is cool, too. Yes. Awesome. Well, like you mentioned, you are a veteran. Uh, you are a man of service, been to the Iraq war. Tell us a little bit about how you got started before we get into kind of your experience, you know, in the war and everything like that. How did you get started? You know, I believe you're from a military family, if if I'm correct. You are correct. So both my grandfathers were war, in World War II. My father got drafted to Vietnam in 1967. So he served 67, 68, and even, you know, during the, the Tet Offense, which is very historical. So, I, you know, they both were in the Army. My mother's father was in the Navy. So... After high school, I, I did not want to go to college. I, I just I did not want to go to college. And so after high school, it's kind of humorous because I, I was a band geek. <laughs> I played the clarinet and there were several of us in the band who were talking about joining the military and of all branches, the Marine Corps. So I, I'm only five one. So I come from a, a short family. And so as everyone else was joining the Marine Corps, it took me a little longer because, of course, one, I didn't weigh enough. I only weighed 90 pounds at 18 years old, graduating high school in 1989. And so that kind of delayed my process. And then two, talk about uh, my identity back then. And this we'll get into that about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But back then, the prohibition for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender individuals was that you could not serve in the military. So when you went to the recruiter's office, whichever branch of service it was, those questions 
were on the applications. And so it asked you about your sexual orientation. And if you had put yes to having feelings or relationships with someone of the same sex, then you were automatically disqualified. So the humorous part about that is that, you know, I lied about that on my, my applications, but then I was truthful to tell them I had epilepsy when I was little, because I did have epilepsy. So, and I didn't have it anymore. So that halted my process big time because they were like, well, you have seizures. And, and so it was just interesting, but I finally did get into the Marine Corps and I had to gain the 12 pounds. And I went off to boot camp right after Desert Storm in March of 1991. And, and, you know, I didn't know how I was going to be. I w- it was tough. It was hard, but I did it. And I, I fell in love with the Marine Corps. I fell in love with the, the esprit de corps, the, the discipline, the camaraderie. And I went from you know, California to Japan, back to California, back to Japan. And I mean, over the years I was re-enlisting. And of course, by all that time, then of course I was coming home from Japan a third time in the summer of 2001, which of course led up right before, you know, coming up now the 20th anniversary of of 9-11. And so that's pretty much after 9-11 is when things really changed, not just for me, but I think for all of us, even still today, as we see, you know, today. But I was very fortunate to serve in the United States Marine Corps for 13 years. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your service. And thank you. Yes. Yeah. We, we appreciate it. And thanks for everything that you've done, you know, for our country and, and coming off of 9-11. You're right. So 9-11 happens. Where are you? And then how does that kind of, you know, catapult you, you know, entering, entering, being a part of the war? Well, 9-11 happened and I was stationed in California, specifically 29 Palms, which is kind of northeast of Palm Springs. And when 9-11 happened, as you see current news right now, as you and I are talking, we went into Afghanistan to, of course, go get justice for what had happened in New York, Washington, D.C. and and Pennsylvania. And so my unit wasn't slated to go to Afghanistan. But then in the, the, the a whole year later, in the fall of 2002, because of the speculation, I'll call it that, the speculation of weapons of mass destruction being, you know, discovered in Iraq. So then majority of the units in, on the West Coast, especially 1st Marine Division, we were we were now put on, on guard or put on alert that, you know, we would possibly be deployed. And it, it just like, I mean, right now, everything that's going on in the fall, because now we're getting into the fall, September, October, November, December, So by the end of 2002, we had already heard we were going to be deployed to the Middle East for possible invasion into Iraq, of course, as history turns out. So I actually was deployed to the Middle East on January 15th of 2003. And of course, for the next couple of months, we we trained, we set up camps, we set up everything, and we waited for word from the commander in chief, of course, the president of the United States to announce when we would go into Iraq. And so that happened in March of 2003. So you get uh, deployed, you enter enter Iraq and became injured. Talk to us about, you know, that, what what happened with that. I believe you were the first one injured in, in the war, if I read that correctly. You know, I don't have a certificate that says, you know, no. first one injured or anything like that. But I will share with you, Allison, as most of the country saw, and you can see on like YouTube videos or the History Channel, whenever they have anniversaries about talking about Operation Iraqi Freedom, we got word, I think, about March 19th that, you know, we were going into Iraq. So then about March 20th, that night, or I would say that evening after sunset, about seven or eight, we, well, that whole day we prepared. We prepared, we tore down the tents, we lined up the vehicles, we made sure everyone had their ammunition, we prepared, 
we we lined up all the vehicles. I was on a logistical convoy. This is March 20th of 2003. We waited till it got dark, like I was mentioning, after sunset, and we started moving forward. We started moving towards Iraq. And somewhere in the middle, like going, I mean, and I was on a huge convoy, probably 55 plus vehicles. And you're traveling through the desert and it's just dark. We didn't use our headlights. We, we, we used night vision goggles. Those were in the front or the passenger in the driver's seat. And I was the passenger for my vehicle. I had a younger Marine who was assigned to me as my driver. And eventually we stopped in, in the middle of the, somewhere in the, I don't even know what time it was, but it was dark. And I fell asleep on the dashboard with my hand. And cause we were, it was always waiting, like what, what's going to happen next. And then that's when you heard the bombs had started to drop. That's where you most people hear the, the term that was coined shock and awe. And so it, the bombs were being dropped and it sounded like thunder. And, and so I'm not real big on New Year's Eve and July 4th. I usually wear headphones like you're wearing right now. I, I cover my ears because it just it brings back those memories. And so after all that night, the next morning, we started up the vehicles. We crossed into Iraq, which I was with First Marine Division. And we were one of the very tip of this. We were like the forefront of leading U.S. forces and our mission that morning or leading up into noon was to secure the city of Basra. And again, being on this convoy, I was at the end of it. And when I got into this position, which was called Azu Bayer, right outside Basra, I had stepped out of the vehicle once to use the restroom, twice to get some supplies from the rear of the Humvee. The third time I left my canvas door open because I was going to eat my MRE, which is our meal ready to eat, because I had missed all my meals the day before as we were getting ready because I had 11 Marines under my supervision that I was worried about them. I wanted to make sure that they were good to go. And so I really didn't, I didn't eat. Well, here we are now in Iraq. We were waiting outside the city limits of Basra to see how we were gonna go in because we knew we were already gonna face some of the Iraqi army resistance. And I decided to eat my MRE. And so as I was warming up, I took two or three steps to, which I don't even remember because next year will be 19 years. What it was I was going to do, I don't know if I was going to go sit in my seat while the MRE was warming up because I was warming it up on the hood of the vehicle. I don't know what I was going to do because that's when the explosion went off. It, I stepped on a landmine. And, and so I was awake for the whole thing. And by all accounts, I don't as, as again, I don't know how it was determined, but they were like, you're the first American injured in the Iraq war. I mean, because everywhere I went, I was the first person or I was like, hmm. You're our first, we're going to take care of you. I'm like, why does everyone keep saying that? Yeah. What do you mean I'm the first? You know, like, yeah. and, and it wasn't a race to see who could get injured first. But right. so by all accounts, by, you know, the Department of Defense, the United States Navy, United States uh, Marine Corps, because we fall under the Department of Navy, the Marine Corps. I was only in Iraq for roughly about just three hours. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So, wow, that's crazy. So, so that happens, you know, the explosion happens and, and you're awake for this and you, you have memory of the accident and kind of the events following. So that's kind of something, you know, when you hear about traumatic injuries happening that, you know, people say, I don't remember a thing. I don't remember anything, Ugh. but you do. I was awake for the whole thing. Oh my God. Oh my, my eyes God. just starting to tear up. Oh, I, and, you know, I mean, no, no, no. I mean, I, I, it's, it's important to talk about because I mean, it, it's, it's like anyone else when you go through a tragedy, of course you have to process it. And, um, but yeah, it never just talking with you because you're, you're so kind. Thank you. And, you know, I get emotional because I did almost lose my life. I lost my right leg. My left leg was broken. My right arm suffered severe nerve damage. And I mean, but, but, you know, what is what does a person do after that? Of course, here we go, because now we have Afghanistan going on because it was going on since 2001. Now we have Iraq going on. 
you have two wars going on. We were still recovering from 9-11. I mean, it was, it's very fresh. So the, in a way, and I don't mean this disrespectfully to any, all the listeners, at that time, I always tell people the wars were popular. The wars were popular, popular in a sense that everybody had yellow ribbons around their trees. Everybody had yellow ribbons around their porches. You saw the yellow magnets behind cars that say, support the troops, support the troops. There was American flags flying over bridges. Everybody was big because we wanted justice for being attacked. And so um, everybody always wanted to give things to the, to the men and women who were getting injured. So I was kind of popular or thrown into that spotlight because I was the first. And people from the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune, you name it, the Wall Street Journal, everybody wanted to interview me. And so it was like I ended up on Oprah Winfrey. I ended up in People magazine. I had become kind of like, which I don't like to use. I I was kind of like a celebrity or something like that, you know, And, and, and so. But as time went on, of course, I was retired from the United States Marine Corps after, in, in 2004 after 13 years and three months. And it's interesting because I still believe, as my mom used to say when I was a kid, you know, everything happens for a reason, Eric. And sometimes I used to challenge her and say, Mom, that plane was not meant to crash, you know, or something like that. But I really, in a way, believe that because if I hadn't gotten injured, where would we be today? And that's part of my story, which I'm excited to share in October with the Ohio realtors and everybody else who's listening, because it is important to talk about, you know, what I've gone through and where we are today. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of a perfect transition. Um, you know, your life post the Marines and after you you retired and became a veteran, that wasn't the end. You didn't just, you know, take your new life and losing a limb. You didn't just take that and live in your house and never, you know, talk to the outside world again. You actually became an activist and, and an advocate for the LGBTQ community, especially in regards to the don't ask, don't tell policy, which you mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, as you were explaining your story on getting into the military. So tell us a little bit about first what that policy is and then kind of how you became an activist and an advocate and eventually ended up, you know, changing this policy, you know, moving forward, changing history, kind of moving forward. Tell us a little bit um, about that. So don't ask, don't tell was meant to be I guess, I don't know, maybe a starting point to to allowing LGBT service members to serve in the military. But but I don't think people really thought about this. And and even for me, because I remember when it was proposed and then I was already in the military and, and it was interesting because Marines, they're always so narcissistic and they're always the last to conform to policies and regulations. So when we were talking about doing this, it was hard for me because, of course, I was in the closet or I, I was hiding and nobody knew I was gay. But when you hear the rhetoric, especially Marines, they're gung ho and they're like, oh, we don't want those people. And, and they, people's just being a, a kind of a generous word because they would say uh, uh, very uh, ugly, vulgar things. So when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was, here you go. 
it was a campaign promise by a candidate running for president. And so uh, I'll say that much. So we all vote, or at least we should all vote. <laughs> and, and so uh, candidates make certain promises. And, and so at that time, when President Clinton became president, his of it, one of his promises was that if you elect me president, then I will open the military to allowing LGBT service members or individuals to serve openly in the military. Of course, the country was not ready for that. I think at that time, I even did research and only 32 or 34% of the, by USA Today poll, all American people supported allowing the LGBT people to serve in the military. So what Don't Ask, Don't Tell did was, remember I mentioned it earlier about those three questions or two questions that I had to in my, so the part was that those questions were removed from all applications for anyone joining the military. It was a compromise. We will allow lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender individuals to join the military, but we're not going to ask you anymore. The compromise was that even though we're letting you serve in the military, you were not to tell anyone. And so here you go for people listening and what I tell people. What that policy did, what that law did was it, it was not just discriminatory. It, it was oppressive. It forced individuals like myself or like you. Now, if you have something to be who you are, your true identity. It forced individuals like myself every day to go to work and every part of the day, 24 seven, 365 days a year to lie about who you were. I'll give you an example. Most people, when you go to Thanksgiving weekend, we all go to our relatives or we go to our friends and then we all come back to work on Monday because now we're in the holiday season right before Christmas. And as humans, as people, as professionals, we were not you know, intrusive, but we are, you know, respectful and we're curious. So we ask each other, how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, where did you go? We ask each other questions. We do that on commutes. We do that in the airports. We do it on, on trains. We do it on subways. We do it in general when you're just talking to someone because you're being respectful. You see a ring on someone's finger and you're like, oh, you're married. What's your wife's name? And that's an ism. So, so going back to having to lie about who you are, for me, I would go to the Marine Corps ball by myself. People always wonder, why don't you have a date? Don't you date? People always wonder, like, you know, what did you do for Thanksgiving? Or what did you do this weekend, Eric? And it was always having to lie. Lie who, was, who I was with or lie about why I don't have a girlfriend, why I don't go to the Marine Corps ball with a girl or something. It was always, oh, it was always being on, on guard. And if it was always worrying that if you slipped up, you would lose your job or even possibly be imprisoned breaking the uniform code of military justice. It was very stressful. And so that law, of course, even affected all of us like myself who went to war. Because if, if I had had a partner or remember at that time too, there was like, I think six states that allowed legal marriage. So even if you were legally married, like for modern Massachusetts, you still could not put that on your record in the military because you would break the law. Even though the law for Maryland or I mean, uh, Massachusetts or Vermont was fine. But if you were to get killed in action, Hopefully there's someone that on your side of the family could alert your spouse or your, your partner or your, your significant other, because what if, I mean, and, and that happened, that happened that people would write their loved ones and, and there was codes, people set up codes, like you were your college buddy and from your fraternity or something, or, and then one day those letters stopped coming and you're wondering, you don't hear anything. And if you weren't in contact with your significant or your partner's family, then how would you know until like you see it in the news that they were killed and there were people who had to hide who they were and then never got to see their loved ones again. And they found out, you know, by by some other way. 
but but don't ask don't tell even though it was meant to be you know something that was was now going towards as far as equity it 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 was it's something that actually propelled a discussion it propelled a discussion that why you know we should allow lgbt service members in the united states armed forces yeah. And, and when you, you know, kind of became part of the catalyst and, and uh, one of the founding founding fathers, I should say, to, to change this, to change this policy, did you ever think that, you know, you would play a part in that? Was that something kind of when you entered the service and had your experience with with being gay in the military? Did you ever have your sight set on this or thought that you would become, you know, the, the big change maker to, to change this policy? No. And, and thank you for you know, saying founding father, Allison, but you know, there were people way back. I don't know if you ever heard of the name Leonard Matlevich, Leonard Matlevich and Google it when we get off her. And, and remember Greta Kammermeyer, Greta Kammermeyer, they made a movie about her serving in silence and Glenn Close played Greta Kammermeyer. But, and I say that because these were the individuals who started the conversation of why, you know, there were LGBT and, and come on, people have to know even before 1776, our independence, there were gay people serving in the military all this time. But there were some people who would say, I, there's no gay people in the military. And I'm like, really? <laughs> but, you know, there were people who started this dialogue way before me. So so I didn't think I was going to become one of those individuals. What catapulted me into, into speaking out was, I mean, I lost my leg. I lost my right leg. I shed blood for this nation. I should, it, going back to my view, when I look at that American flag, I believe in its freedom. I believe in, in, in its independence. I believe in people's happiness, their respect, their safety, and that we should stand by those last six words with liberty and justice for all. And here I was, you know, who, who almost died and now have a purple heart, but I was reserved from having the rights to what other people had. And so I remember it was in 2005. And of course, here I am now, private citizen again, going back to college. I started majoring in social work. And the way things happen in life, it's weird because now I get into social work and I really wanted to just help people like wounded talking to people. Then I discover diversity, stigma, you know, I discover oppression. I discover all kinds of social justice learning my in my education. And so in 2005, that November, and of course, I live in Texas. <laughs> so we overwhelmingly passed a state constitutional ban banning same sex marriage. And I shook, I shrugged my shoulders and I thought. It doesn't pertain to me. I'm, I don't have anyone. I'm not, I don't ever want to get married. And um, I was completely wrong. So in the following year, I saw eight more states. I started paying attention to the news. I started paying attention to what was going on, even about my life and other people's lives, people's lives that I had fought for, people's lives that we lost on 9-11. And I started thinking, this is unfair. I went to war to fight for people's freedoms so that we wouldn't be attacked and the democracy of our nation but I don't have those rights all because I'm gay. And so that's when I finally, finally got up the nerve to contact the human rights campaign. And I didn't know who they were. I had my, my very first uh, or partner who uh, I was with at the time was the one who introduced me to them. His name is Daryl Parsons and we're still good friends, but he introduced me to them. And I remember he tried to put the sticker on my car and I was like, I don't want that sticker on my car. <laughs> it was a little equal sign that they have for their, their at the human rights campaign. And I contacted them via email late one night, sent them an email, told them who I was. I was the first American in Iraq war. If you don't believe me, I've been on Oprah, I guess like thinking that's part of my resume or something that it's true. He's not lying. 
And so uh, they contacted me and, and it was weird because when they contacted me and it was October 2006 and they said, we would like for you to work with us. I'm thinking, okay, what do you need me to do? Do you need me to phone bank? Do you need me to go to, you know, Canvas and sign people up for membership at gay pride parades? What do you need me to do? And of course, here it was, they're like, we think you could be our spokesperson. And I'm like, for what? They're like, well, do you know about our organization? I, I said, no, not really. They're like, well, we, we actually work on, on legislation and, and, you know, advocating for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender individuals, civil rights in this country. And we think you could be our spokesperson for when we introduce legislation or when a member of Congress introduced legislation in 2007 for repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And the light bulb went off. It was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that law. That's the law I served under for so many years. And that's the law I lied about all the time. And so on February 28th of 2007, it was Good Morning America broke the story. And it was actually Jake Tapper, Jake Tapper, who's now on CNN. And I still keep in touch with him, not as much anymore. But if I hadn't been in the news before, like on Oprah or People Magazine, because I was the first American injured in the Iraq war, now here it was coming out four years after my injury and, and that the on Good Morning America, that the first American injured in the Iraq war was indeed a gay Marine. Wow. And now is out to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Wow. So not only were you, you know, dealing with coming off of the war and, and your life-changing injury, but now you're also dealing with another huge life event, which is coming out and sharing the story and being open um, and standing in the fact that you're gay. And now you're like, for lack of a better terms, a celebrity too. How, what was that like? What were you going crazy? How did you, cause I think either any one of those, you know, situations would probably be a lot for anyone to take on. And you were kind of dealing with all of those at the same time. One of the biggest things I, I had to think about first, because I always worry about them. I have I have a twin sister, I have an older sister, and I, my mom and dad are so alive, and I have two nieces. I considered my family, what it would do to them. Because again, going back, my father being a, a Vietnam veteran, and he, he has a lot of veteran friends they all talk to. And my mom was a, a second grade school teacher and all her friends. So the reason I bring them up is because when I got injured and I was on the news locally, you know, constantly every day at the beginning of the Eric War, they were also being affected. Everybody knew who they were. You're Eric Alva's mother. You're Eric, Staff Sergeant Eric Alva's father. Oh my God, let me shake your hand, sir. Your son is a hero. My sisters at work were being affected. So what I knew what I was about to do was going to affect them as well. And sure enough, the next day after my mom went back to work, and I told them what I was going to do and that I wanted their support. And, and I did hesitate. And I said, if, if you don't want me to do this, then, then I won't do this. And, and my father was like, no, you need, I'm proud of you. You need to do this. Cause I knew I was gay. And my mom was a little apprehensive, but, but I think she was apprehensive for the fact she goes, I don't see why you need to do this. I said, because it's the right thing to do. She goes, you know, when people speak out, remember Martin Luther King or, you know, Megger, people get hurt because people try to silence them. I said, I am willing to take that chance. I said, I have to tell this story or I have to speak out because it's it, it's the right thing to do. So, but sure enough, the next day after I came out after on Good Morning America, she goes to school and one of her, her teachers or colleagues comes up to her and she's like, oh, I saw the news yesterday. She goes, I will pray for you. Like if like if something had just been like, your son is, is you know, like it's bad. I'm sorry, he's like this. And so my mom told her, from what my mother said to me, she said, well, I'll, uh, pray for yourself. <laughs> I um, love that. But, oh my gosh. Your but, mom but sounds so, awesome. <laughs> so it's like, even to this day, it's, here it is 2021 and they still get, they still get recognized or my parents or they've gone to restaurants where people buy them dinner and they're wow. like, they're like, well, someone paid for your bill because they know who your son is. And my Aww. parents are like, 
you know, like, <laughs> they're okay. over it. They're and like, now, okay. They're over it already. Yeah. And, and so anyways, but it was, it was not something I had expected what was about to happen because then of course, here it is again, that's 2007. It's almost time for another election. 2008, you have all of these candidates. Here you go. And you have Hillary Clinton, who could possibly be the first female president of the United States. You have Barack Obama, the first African-American who could be president of the United States. You have all these people making promises again, you know, and and one of the promises on the Democratic side was if you elect me president, I will repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And of course, here we go. 2008 election comes. Barack Obama makes history. First African-American president. And then, of course, in the first year of his administration, we really we well, we didn't see anything towards Don't Ask, Don't Tell. I did testify on the House Armed Services Committee because we had already introduced the legislation. So we were restarting the process from 2008 to 2010. And it was there that we saw, you know, what was already going to happen when we were going through that process. It was unfortunate because now the bill that was introduced would repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell for lesbian, gay and bisexual individuals. It was not all inclusive. We, 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 I say we, because I still apologize to my transgender brothers and sisters who are, who are serving openly today now. And that's another story, but we didn't include them because we were doing the research and a lot of people were not comfortable with transgender individuals. As we see the news, all these anti-transgender bills, even in sports and bathrooms. And so when we, we finally succeeded in repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, again, it was not all inclusive. But we succeeded and I was very honored. I was very fortunate that I stood right behind President Barack Obama's right shoulder as I watched him pin his signature to, you know, changing the law. And even though he did that on December 22nd, 2010, we had an implementation phase to go through. We had a probation phase to go through. And so the the actual first day of the services being open is coming up next month, September 20th of 2021, because it was September 20th of 2011, that the services were open to lesbian, gay, bisexual individuals. And, and so here we are 10 years later, 10 years later. And, 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 and people have to think that because here you were, you were, don't ask, don't tell, and, and even the prohibition, you were firing your best fighter pilot. You were firing your best cook who cooked for an admiral. You were firing the, your linguist people who, who could talk to interrogate the enemy. You were firing people in intelligence. It didn't matter what job you had. You were firing people solely because they were gay or lesbian or bisexual. I mean, and that really did, didn't do justice for us while we were trying to fight the war on terrorism. And so here we are, here we are, 2021. And, and we've seen how history has, has kind of, you know, revolved because I think when we repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it answered the question about what do we do with the couples that are married from Vermont, Massachusetts? We can't give them federal benefits. So then the argument of same-sex marriage came about, and then here we are. And now here we are, 2021, and new president, and the ban has been lifted. We're now there, and I, I have a handful of transgender brothers and sisters who are serving openly right now in uniform. So, I mean, it's been a long, you know, uh, but it's not over. It's not over because there's so much to, I'm not just gay, I'm also disabled. I lost my leg. I'm a veteran. I speak on veterans' rights. I'm also Native American and I'm also, you know, Latino, Hispanic. And so I, and, and I'm a big feminist. I'm a big advocate for immigration. I'm an advocate for people's rights, people's, you know, human rights. And, and again, it's not something that I ever thought I was going to be, but, but here I am. And, and, you know, as I grow older, when I first started this in 2006, my hair was all black and now it's pretty much all gone. It's all gray. 
but I love it. I wouldn't change anything today. And like you said, it is almost everything happens for a reason. And, you know, you have to look back on your life and the things that you went through to get you to this point. You know, how can you say that it was for any other reason, you know, that it all makes sense, that it all was, you know, a part of a bigger plan? Because look where you are today and and look at the advocacy and lives that you've been able to change by your experience and and what you went through. It's really incredible. Thank you. And it's a two way street because I have I've been speaking. So after coming out on Good Morning America. Then I got on a speakers bureau with Kepler Speakers Associates. And I have traveled the last, you know, almost 15 years. I have met so many wonderful people. It's such a blessing and, and, and a gift to meet, you know, meet you to share my stories. But I've also heard people's individual testimonies. And it's just, it's, it's a blessing. It's remarkable because we all have a story. And it's just, I love hearing, you know, people's personal testimonies, even though some tragic, I think, the dialogue that we have to remember is that, you know, we're only given this one life. I, I share that in, in my talks that when I end is that I wake up every morning being grateful. I have a huge perspective on life, even though, again, I'm not perfect. I lose my patience sometimes in traffic or things like that. But it, I, I, I kind of regroup and think how, how fortunate I am. But I tell people, you know, we're only given this one life. And when you wake tomorrow, because tomorrow's just a word, it doesn't exist. When you wake in the morning, then you've been promised another day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's so true and great. And, and, you know, to hear that you still have this wonderful, amazing perspective after everything that you've been through is really incredible. And I think an inspiration to us all. And I can't wait to hear more from you in October at our diversity summit, just here in a couple of weeks. So, um, Make sure to our realtors listening that you all get registered for that. OhioRealtors.org will give you all of the event details and information. You can hear more of Eric's story. We got a little preview, but I'm excited to hear more um, and definitely dive into some more of the topics that we talked about today. But I think this was great. Thank you for your service. Thank you for the work that you've done, you know, to make this world a better, more inclusive place for everyone. And thank you for your time speaking with us today. Well, it's a two-way street, as I mentioned, Allison. Thank you. It's such a blessing. And I'm always grateful and fortunate that I get to share my story and just, you know, hope that anyone going through some sort of, you know, oppression or, or, or difficulty that I hope that it inspires or empowers individuals that, that you're not alone. No one should ever feel like they're different or alone from anyone else. We are all here together. It's so true. We have more in common than, than we don't. Absolutely. So thank you again to our listeners. Thank you guys for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. Email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time. This has been a Humble Pod production. Stay humble.